Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, December 28th, day 83 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel-Dan here with our editor David Horvitz in our Jerusalem offices. Hi, David. Hey, Amanda. David was down south in the Gaza envelope earlier this week. We'll hear some of his impressions, as well as how the government's impatience for results in the war may impede the IDF's prosecution of it, and how the war, perhaps half over, has the harder half to come. All this and more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachechlawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. This morning has seen a suspected drone infiltration in the Upper Galilee, and yesterday sirens sounded repeatedly in northern Israel as rockets fired from Lebanon pummeled the towns of Rosh Nikra and Kiryat Shmona. No injuries were reported. Also in northern Gaza, IDF troops are reportedly battling northern Gaza's last Hamas battalion. The head of the World Health Organization warned today that the Gaza population is in grave peril, citing acute hunger. The IDF announced the deaths of three soldiers in fighting in the Gaza Strip yesterday, bringing the toll of slain troops since the start of the ground offensive to 167. David, before we hear your analysis of the war, let's quickly discuss a report that the High Court of Justice is likely to strike down the highly controversial reasonableness law passed by the government this summer as part of its judicial overhaul program. The draft decision was leaked to the media on Wednesday evening. So how credible do you think that this leak is? Well, I think it's it's credible, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how the court will rule. Um, and it's really it's plunging us back into the really the the heart of the contention and dispute about the Netanyahu coalition's efforts prior to October the seventh. The focus of its months in in power before then on um, bringing the judicial system under the control of a majority coalition in Israel. Uh, this was the only element, the only core element of its planned, quote-unquote, reform, really an overhaul, a remaking of the balance of power. This was the only part that had become law. Uh, it was predictably um, petitioned in the high court. And we have a leak that suggests that um, there's an eight to seven majority, couldn't be closer, uh, among the entire 15 justice bench to strike down this law. Now, the government has argued that the court doesn't even have the right to strike down this law. And we should add that this is the, 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 the point here is that this is some kind of current situation. Uh, from my understanding, uh, judges circulate among uh, themselves their thinking 
uh, or certainly do in some cases, uh, it is perfectly possible, I believe, that they may be swayed by each other's arguments. That's one of the reasons why there are drafts of uh, a decision that is taking shape. So it might be that this is exactly what they're going to say. It might be that this was not what they were planning to say. It's certainly compromising and problematic because if they say something different, then you know, does that shadow uh, uh, and suggest that they change their minds because of public pressure? And it's most problematic, I think, uh, as I said, because it plunges us back into a dispute that we don't have the luxury of focusing on right now because there's a war, because there was the worst attack inside Israel, the biggest slaughter inside Israel in the history of the state. And we really don't want to be tearing ourselves apart right now about something else, however cardinal. I'm not saying it's not a, a major issue. It is a major issue. Uh, it's unfortunate that it has erupted. And, it, you know, since this leak last night, there is, a, again, a great big political debate and so on. You know, the, there, are, there are bigger, more urgent issues right now, it seems to me. We noted last week when we, when we spoke about the, the cracks in the unity, especially in the political echelons. But as reporters, suppose that somebody gave you, somebody leaked you this report, I would imagine that you would report on it, though you have to wonder about the motivations of the person who's leaking it. I think that's exactly right. I think if uh, you know our, our job as journalists is to bring material into the public domain, you're not going to sit on it and not report it because it's problematic for one side, both sides, or everybody. Uh, you can present it in careful and intelligent ways, and you are aware. Journalists are often aware, I'm sure, that if somebody is telling them something, it's for, it's for the benefit of the person who's telling them, as well as potentially a you know, public interest. Uh, and that's the, the, the ground in which journalists act. But I don't think somebody should be, I'm not sure that anybody has. I think I've heard some criticism. You know, I don't think should, somebody should be attacking the reporter who, who brought it to the public's attention. Um, the, you know, the, there are motivations when people leak material to journalists and journalists you know, should be aware of that and should present the material sensibly. You've noted the gap between the political echelons and those who are actually running the war, the generals, etc. And the IDF at the beginning of the war warned the government that it would be a long and hard war. We're beginning to see some politicians who are complaining about the length and perhaps the lack of great uh, achievements. So how are you seeing this play out? I think there's a, there's a mix of um, politicking by by some in in. In, in the political leadership. Uh, in other words, people saying things because they think it's going to be helpful for them. And also, there is evidence, it seems to me, of a, of a failure to understand what happened on October 7, however unbelievable that may sound, and how the war is, is being carried out and the challenges from people in, in government, you know, from ministers. There, were, there was a minister who I, I whatever, who shall remain nameless, who, who, who days after October 7th didn't seem to have understood what had happened, uh, was, was derisive about the forces that had smashed into Israel and carried out the, the horrors that they carried. He didn't seem to know that that had happened. Uh, and now here we are two months later, and you've got ministers asking the chief of staff in leaks from cabinet sessions, well, where are the achievements? How, why has Hamas not been broken yet? Um, leaving aside responsibility, for how it was that Hamas was allowed to become so strong over the years, you've had the consequence of that raising of Hamas's capabilities. And you don't need to be some kind of military expert to recognize that 
essentially from 2007, 16 years of strengthening defenses and building an army. That's what Hamas has had, still has in, in large part in Gaza, which your army is now has been dispatched on your orders to dismantle, which is incredibly complicated because it's a very densely populated area and Hamas has no compunction in putting its people everywhere in harm's way. And when you listen to the generals, they say there's not a home, almost no home in northern Gaza that wasn't booby-trapped, that didn't have weapons in it. Very complicated. You're fighting at ground level. You're fighting uh, um, forces that are below the ground. We're not talking about, I don't know what people think when they when they hear the word tunnel. We're not talking about a little tunnel. We're talking about a whole underworld there, which you are trying to tackle as well. It's not going to, victory is not going to happen overnight. That's what the army said from the start. By the way, it's what the prime minister said from the start. Um, and this is now gradually becoming clear. And unfortunately, some of the political leadership doesn't seem to really understand what is going on here and what they have dispatched our people's army to tackle. Of course, there are other voices throughout this almost three months of war, one calling for the nuclear option. But it sounds to me that what led to this war is a complete underestimation of the, of Hamas's capabilities, that this kind of thinking has not yet been cracked by what we're seeing in Gaza. In other words, you're, you're, you're saying that the, the, the same symptoms that led to a sort of willful ignoring of what Hamas was doing still applies to some extent in, in the political sense of the war or in the army sense of how to fight the war? I would say more in the political sense because the army is, of course, in the mud right now. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, but I think you know, we, we should take a couple of little steps back here, or if you'll allow me. I have lots of criticism of Israel's political leadership, um, and I think it's, it's fairly well justified. Uh, there were policies um, uh, regarding Hamas and a disinclination uh, to to tackle Hamas uh, as seriously as it could have been tackled because of um, some political um, assessments and certainly there were there were people you know but Salah Smotrich who's the finance minister spoke about the Palestinian Authority as a burden and Hamas as an asset uh, in terms of pressure for a Palestinian state uh, Netanyahu moved away from supporting a Palestinian state under any framework, which was something he had endorsed in the past, to to no longer uh, um, being prepared to countenance that, and equating as he as he's doing right now the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas. There's and and by the way, there's nuance and there's uh, um, there's there's much to be said about some of these arguments, um, w which requires nuance. But you had a kind of political mindset. But the prime blame for what happened on October the 7th, in my opinion, is, is with the army. The army's job is to keep Israel safe. The military, the security hierarchies, keep Israel safe. Make sure that people can sleep in their own bed without, being fear, without living in fear of being slaughtered in it. And on October the 7th, they failed. Now, they've said that they failed. But part of the failure, and this comes back to your question, was a failure to internalize that it was possible that Hamas could be so evil, would do such terrible things. And I find that incomprehensible, and we've discussed this many times, not only, but also because there was something called the Second Intifada. They slaughtered Israelis wherever they could. They blew up buses. Their charter calls to kill Jews everywhere. What else did the army think that Hamas might be doing in Gaza, and why was it so unwilling 
to challenge its own assessment that Hamas was actually rather more interested in governing Gaza. And the question that you're really asking, and I'm wondering, and I don't know what to make of this, is has the army even now internalized some of the lengths that Hamas will, will go to, has gone to, to survive in Gaza and to harm the army. So I hope that the army has internalized what it's up against. And, and one of the pieces that I wrote this week um, suggests that maybe territorially, the IDF is closing in on halfway done in Gaza. And if you look at what, what we're being told, um, there were 24 Hamas battalions with about 30,000 gunmen uh, um, throughout them. In other words, a little over a thousand uh, gunmen, shall we say, in each battalion, although I don't think it works entirely like that. And in northern Gaza, um, mo- almost all of the 12 or so battalions are um, largely um, dismantled, not completely all of them, and that's what the army is doing now. And then it's moving on to central Gaza, where there are four battalions, and then there's another five in Khan Yunus, which is a big Hamas stronghold, and finally three more in Rafiach at the, at the southern end of the strip. So the army would tell you that in northern Gaza, things have proceeded as planned, and now they're moving south. The problem with moving south is that all of Gaza is now in the south, and the further south you go, the more uh, um, densely populated everything becomes. You can't encourage southern Gazans or people in southern Gaza to go back, in some cases, to homes in the north because there is nowhere to go. And by the way, Hamas would go back with them. So that's, you know, it's as simple as that. However, challenging and however high the losses and however widespread the devastation for very understandable reasons it seems to me largely this has been the relatively straightforward half of the territory in which to dismantle hamas is the army going to be able to continue to dismantle by which we mean taking apart these battalions destroying its army its terrorist army is that going to be possible in the south with an impatient america a critical world that seems to have no empathy for the notion that you're fighting a terrorist government that is abusing its own people to try and kill yours. October the 7th receded into history like it never happened, and impatience even in the Israeli government. We'll go to a short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent (laughs) and just go. I texted him like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant detailed to the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee on Tuesday that Israel is being, quote, attacked from seven fronts, Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. We're seeing how much of slog a struggle this current war with Hamas is. David, do you 
think that we can even conceivably defend ourselves from this seven-front attack. I think what's striking about what Gallant had to say is when you look across that that list of, of seven areas where he said Israel has already been attacked, uh, the potential for escalation, for things to get worse, uh, exists, I think, on six of them, and the seventh being Gaza. I don't think that things are going to get worse because they've already been so terrible. Uh, but on all those other fronts, there is potential for escalation. Uh, the army insists that on the, on the northern border, uh, it is... Um, heavily deployed and it's that the air force is well able to um, divert and in some case already has forces uh, ready to go on the Lebanon border. The potential for escalation there it seems to me is is considered to be um, immediate. The, the last few days have seen um, heavier attacks uh, including from Hezbollah across the border. You know that something like 60,000 Israelis who live near the northern border uh, have been ordered to evacuate. Uh, more have done so of their own volition. Nobody is going back uh, to places close to the border where individual homes are being targeted by anti-tank missiles, where there's rocket fire and so on. It's very serious, that front. Um, and, you know, the I Iran tying almost all, if not all of these fronts together is something that Israel is aware of. Do I think Israel has the capabilities? I think Israel has the capabilities, not without, you know, incredible strains. And one doesn't even want to you know, think about potential losses. We're already losing lives here uh, um, every day in Gaza. Um, but this is, you know, this is, a, this is a crisis and it potentially can get worse. Um, I think if you asked military chiefs, they would be telling you privately uh, that there is some relief that Hezbollah did not weigh in. Uh, as heavily as it could on day one of of the war, uh, Hezbollah has has rocket capabilities that dwarf those of Hamas. One of the assessments that you hear is that unlike Hamas, which has absolutely no compunction in seeing Gaza, you know, reduced to rubble in large quantities, and and is actually actively, I would say, not only misreporting the death toll, but inflating the death toll through its own actions. In other words, it is deliberately getting Gazans killed. There's an assessment that Hezbollah does not feel the same indifference to the well-being of Lebanon, that it has a stake in Lebanon, that it does want to govern Lebanon and so on. That might be true. I would just add that it was that kind of thinking regarding Hamas that contributed to the misassessment. So I hope that any assessment that ultimately Hezbollah doesn't want to see Beirut reduced to what happened to Gaza City, I hope that is set against other voices that say, well, maybe it doesn't care and maybe it could attack. And at the very least, we need to be we need to ensure that it is not easy for it to attack. Finally, this week you traveled down south to the Gaza envelope. Do you want to share just some impressions of what you saw during this trip, not your first? Well, you know, the first thing to say, and it's banal, but, you know, we live in Jerusalem and it's just, the you know, the Gaza envelope. You know, people know this unless you've, you know, you've not been to Israel or not traveled at all in Israel. It's just so small, this country. You, you know, you're traveling to the war zone or to next to the war zone from the you know the capital or from tel aviv it's an hour hour and a half before you start getting into the areas where where where, the, where you can hear the war and it's not much longer until you can see the war you see the the plumes of smoke uh, rising and you're driving past areas first of all you, you internalize that that on october the 7th they got to places like ofakim that is not near the gaza uh, border by the small standards of israel they came a long long way 
And then you're, you know, you're driving past um, areas that were very, very heavily targeted, where dozens and dozens and dozens of people were killed, and it's just heartbreaking. And uh, yeah, I drove all the way down to Kerem Shalom, which is the goods crossing that Israel recently reopened at the very bottom of the Gaza Strip, you know, close to uh, the border with, you know, it's where Ga- the Gaza-Egypt border is. And there's a long, you saw a long line of, of trucks uh, waiting to get to Kerem Shalom because Israel is now um, checking uh, at Kerem Shalom goods that I, I, I can't, I was trying to figure out how they got to where they were. So I'm assuming they've come out of Egypt into Israel and then are being checked before they go into Gaza. Um, but that was interesting. Couldn't, you know, I hadn't prepared ahead of time, hadn't asked permission, so I didn't get to go into Kerem Shalom. But that was interesting to me, this long, long um, waiting line of big, big trucks with, I'm certain, aid intended for Gaza that were waiting to be processed at Kerem Shalom. And that hopefully eventually get to the Gazans and not to Hamas. Right, because we see, you know, we see um, and have seen, I don't know to quantify how much of the aid is being seized the second it crosses into Gaza, but we've seen uh, gunmen on trucks making sure nobody else took it, and we've seen people getting right up close to trucks and and pulling stuff off them. Um, And we're not entirely sure if those are desperate Gazan non-combatants or if they are Hamas people. It's just a little tiny element of the we're not sure and how to distinguish between gunmen fighting in civilian clothes or Hamas people and non-combatant Gazans. And, you know, are they Hamas sympathizers or horrified by Hamas? That's a whole different world that we that we continue to try to struggle to understand. Definitely a topic for a future podcast episode. David, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.